Hello and welcome to Restoration Church's Teaching of the Week. If this is your first time, welcome. So glad that you were able to join us. If you'd like to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about restoration, you can go to restorationaz.org. And with that said, we hope you enjoy this week's teaching from Landon Myers. It was pretty cool during the, uh, the first gathering, I had a chance to sneak away for a brief moment during worship back into the studio uh, where Whitney was doing a, a training for new Our Kids volunteers, except this time it was all students getting trained. And I think I counted 12 or 13 of our, our kids and our students who've developed this heart and desire to want to serve those younger than them. And it was just this beautiful picture of what the church should be, this young group of kids already beginning to have this desire to, to follow the way of Jesus and to serve. And so parents, well done, those of you uh, that are instilling that within your hearts. So many of you, as I look out right now, have poured so much into our kids yourselves, uh, and that is having an impact now, today, in this moment. So thank you for the role that you're playing if you're kind of new with us, or maybe you've missed a few weeks, uh, we'll be in John chapter 13, as I said, as we uh, continue in what we call one of our practices. At Restoration Church, we don't want to just know things about Jesus. We want to put into practice his way of life, and, and practice goes better with the team. So we have groups all over the, the greater Prescott area right now in our faithful citizenship practice that's the series we're in as we look at what it means and how we can go about uh, being faithful citizens to King Jesus and simultaneously uh, in our citizenship here in Prescott and Arizona and the United States as well. And so that's the topic. We're going to start our time with that topic in mind in John chapter 13. And John chapter 13 is honestly a passage, a chapter where we read about Jesus' way of life that to me is really kind of frightening. I think we've packaged Jesus into this little Christmas present-like box with wrapping and a bow so it feels nice and looks nice. But there's a lot of following Jesus that is honestly just terrifying. And in a way, John chapter 13 kind of symbolizes that. Because what Jesus calls us into, uh, on one hand is uncomfortable, on another hand is really costly, but and from another perspective, it's just downright foolish. Because the way of Jesus, his value system is so different than our culture's value system today that the things he calls us into lead us to do perceivably foolish things. It's not all, all pretty and easy. It doesn't always feel good and look nice. And the thing about it is the words Jesus gives to us are follow me, not know things about me, not pray to me, not be really grateful that I provided salvation for you. What he tells us to do, the command is follow me even into the absurd types of relationships and places and actions and conversations that he modeled. A brief little bit of context before we dive into this really thrilling uh, moment of what we have next. 
Jesus is about to be crucified, and he knows that. That's the kind of relational, mental, emotional context for this passage. And I've been really praying about it and thinking this week of how I uh, can bring to life for you John chapter 13. And my conclusion is this, I can't. There's no cultural equivalent of what is happening in John 13 for us today. I don't really have any metaphors or illustrations or ideas to really uh, cause you to feel the moments. And so we're going to do something that's probably really healthy. We're just going to rely on the passage. But you're going to have to kind of take a leap and open up your heart and mind to understand really the depths and weight and kind of absurdity of what is happening in this passage. We'll begin in John chapter 13, verse one. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now by the time of supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. Verse four, probably the most important verse this morning. So he got up from supper, laid aside his robe, took a towel, and tied it around himself. He took off his robe, put it off, put it aside. Other portions of the scriptures kind of have this language of taking on and putting on off. Put off what was old, take on what is new. In this moment, Jesus is both figuratively and literally taking off his robe that symbolized in this moment the role he played in that room. He was the leader and the teacher. He was the greatest in that room, and he takes that off, the clothing that symbolized it, and showed everybody who he was in that room. He literally takes off the robe, and he makes an exchange And instead, he wraps this towel around himself, which is another both figurative and literal symbol, identity moment for Jesus. He takes on the role, the identity of the servant. It was not very long ago, Jesus and his disciples were walking along a a dusty pathway, and his disciples, kind of in the distance, they got a little bit away from Jesus, so they hoped that he wouldn't hear what they were saying. They had an argument. You know what they argued about? Who was the greatest? They're just like us. They're really selfish people that get caught up in their own things. They worry about their own lives. They want things for themselves. And so they literally have this argument about who amongst them would be the greatest. And then Jesus comes and goes, you have it all wrong. And that that moment culminates right here where the leader the unquestioned greatest in the room takes off the robe and puts on a towel, which is what the servant would wear, which leads us to verse five. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel tied around him. This is normal in Jesus' culture. There's something shocking and disgusting about this passage. But what is normal in this passage is the washing of feet. They were used to having their feet washed by the servants. 
So we need to step back for a second in our cultural moment because I don't know about you, but I've never had my feet washed walking into somebody's home. That would be weird. (laughs) This was not weird for the disciples. What was unique, though, is who was doing the washing. This is why I'm saying there's no cultural equivalent. They weren't surprised that their feet were washed. They were surprised that the unquestioned greatest, most significant, important man in the room took off his robe, symbolizing his position, and exchanged it for a towel symbolizing a new position and became the servant. That is what is unique in this story. As we continue to read, what we need to reflect on is what the washing of feet symbolized. Not literally, because we don't do that, but what does it mean to serve in that kind of way and to identify ourselves as the servant? Verse four, so Jesus got up from supper, laid aside... His robe took a towel and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel tied around him. He came to Simon Peter, who asked him, Simon's the best, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you don't understand now, but afterward you will know. Peter, very passionate, says, you will never wash my feet, ever. Jesus replied, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Peter is the king of swinging pendulums here. (laughs) Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. To which Jesus responds, one who is bathed doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. To Peter, he says, you are clean, but not all of you, for he knew who would betray him. This is why he said, you are not all clean. Verse 12, when Jesus had finished washing their feet, he put on his robe and reclined again and said to them, do you know what I have done for you? Pause for a second. Jesus finished washing their feet. Jesus finished washing all of their feet. The one he just referenced who was in the process of betraying him. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his robe, he reclined again and said to them, do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord. This is well said, for I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. This is really important. Jesus was not neglecting his position the gifting, who he was as the rightful king and leader and the one that everybody needed him to be. They needed him. We need him to be that. But as he, as he held that position and authority and power, he took off the normal symbolism of the leader and put on a towel to embrace being a servant leader simultaneously. That is unique. We don't see much of servant leadership in our culture. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. He's saying you also should be servant leaders. To us, that does not mean that we should go start washing random people's feet. That would scare everybody away. What it means is we should take on the role of the humble servant leader. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Once again, Jesus does not say, 
be thankful for what I've done for you, know things about me, say a prayer just the right way so you can go to heaven. He says, follow me. Do as I've done. Following Jesus is not easy. Following Jesus is not comfortable. Following Jesus often makes no sense. But it's absolutely worthwhile. Verse 16, I assure you, a slave is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I'm not speaking about all of you. I know those I have chosen, but the scripture must be fulfilled. The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. I am telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. I assure you, whoever receives anyone I send receives me, and the one who receives me receives him who sent me. Jesus had a pretty diverse community, a pretty diverse group of followers. He most likely washed in this moment the feet of two brothers who grew up in a wealthy family. Their dad had a really successful business, fishing, so much so that he was able to hire external hands to come in and take their place when they went on this kind of excursion to follow this guy named Jesus. So Jesus takes off his robe as the leader, puts on a towel as the servant, and washes the feet of two wealthy brothers. Jesus also took off his robe and laid it aside by his own choosing, put on the towel, the identity of the servants, and got down by the feet of a tax collector, the most hated of all the people in this culture because everybody knew that the way this guy made his living was stealing from other people, his own. It's kind of like the IRS, but you know they stole from your mom and you can't do anything about it. That's the tax collector stealing from his own family. He's despised. He's hated by everybody. And here is Jesus washing his feet. And it kind of makes you wonder, what do you think everybody thought about Jesus when one of his disciples, one of the ones he chose, was a tax collector? probably viewed Jesus uniquely for that, let alone him taking off his robe and putting on a towel to serve this tax collector. Jesus also washed the feet of somebody who was probably a really deep introvert. It's probably awkward enough washing somebody's feet with no words, and with this guy, nothing was said. Jesus also washed the feet of a political activist and extremist, the kind that's on social media way too much and is really kind of embarrassing. Jesus was in the midst of that, associating with himself, serving by washing that guy's feet. We know this about all the disciples. Jesus washed the feet of those that were just the, the normal kids that grew up in church. Jesus also washed the feet of a thief, someone that stole from him someone that was in the process of betraying him, the man that in some ways would be responsible when not too many hours later, Jesus was hung on a tree with nails through his flesh like a criminal. Jesus knew what was about to happen. Jesus knew who was about to do it. And Jesus washed his feet too. What are the equivalents in our lives? Who's your Judas? Are you willing to wash 
those feet? Who's the tax collector? Are you willing to wash those feet? Who's got more than you? Are you willing to wash their feet? Who do you not understand? Are you willing to wash their feet? Not physically, not literally. What does it mean to choose to take off the identity of power, not to let go of the roles and giftings and positions we have, but the identity and take on the identity of a servant to lead and love in that way? That doesn't make sense. Culturally, that's foolish. From my perspective, that is foolish. I don't want to do that. It doesn't make sense until I step back and go, Jesus is actually trustworthy. But make no mistake, when we choose to follow Jesus, there was a reason that he often encouraged people not to follow him. If you read the Gospels, you'll see Jesus goes, hey, follow me because I am everything. But as you do, make sure you think about it twice because there's a steep cost and it'll make sense to probably nobody around you, oftentimes. Is he actually worthy of following when he says, follow me? He gives us quite the relational model to follow. Last week, we spent time in Jeremiah 29. If you missed last week, the prophet Jeremiah is speaking to a group of God's own people that are now exiles in a foreign culture where they have a good amount of religious freedom, but all kinds of external pressures as well that are, are meant to assimilate them to a new set of cultural values. And what they're called to do is stand firm in their faith, yet also seek the best of that culture anchored in the middle of this relational involvement. We read about it in Jeremiah 29.4. This is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. If you missed last week, one of the key words there, or two words, is I deported. God had them there at this time. It was his choice. Then he gives this picture. He paints it for them. Here's what it looks like. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce, the ones that destroyed your home. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Don't feel bad for yourself. Don't get stuck in pity. Be involved. Seek the welfare of the city. Once again, I have deported to you. In essence, seek what is best of those that destroyed your life just a moment ago. Pray to the Lord for them on its behalf, for when it has prosperity, you will have prosperity. As exiles, people with freedom of religion in our country, we are also, just like these exiles, called to relational integration. We need to be anchored in Christian community with people that can guide us that can challenge us, that can question us, that can teach us on the way of Jesus. And we are also called to be integrated with all kinds of other relationships, with people that do not follow Jesus, with people that believe totally opposite things, with people that have no clue who Jesus is, that think we're crazy for following him because following Jesus is somewhat crazy. As exiles, we're called to this place of tension 
Tension, I think, is one of the, the most important things in life, to have a healthy tension, to not be taken too far one way or the other, but to be balanced and strong with a foundation in the middle. And that the tension that we need to embrace as exiles, relationally speaking, is one where we're not isolated in solely Christian community, but we're also not fully assimilated on the other side of this tension to the values of our culture that are antithetical to the way of Jesus, because those exist too. We're called to be in the middle, planted, grounded, founded in a healthy tension, existing in both sides. And that's not an easy task. There's risks if we err on the side of isolation or the side of assimilation. I wanna talk about a few of those. The risks of isolation, and some of us in this room fall into that category, are that we are not actually listening to the call of Jesus to seek the welfare of our community. We're actually so concerned about what might happen if those people influence us that we selfishly build our little spiritual castles, physical castles, whatever it is, and we don't follow the call of Jesus to seek the best interest of everybody around us. Fear of the outsider, fear of those different, causes us to neglect the call of Jesus, often in the name of Jesus, falsely, to protect ourselves. Another risk is that we will then have no voice in our culture. I talk about this a lot. The church has lost its voice and culture. A huge reason for that is because we've isolated ourselves as a community that just points to an enemy. We're judgmental, we're hypocritical, we isolate, we've lost our voice and influence in culture. Third risk is this, and this is speaking of the next generation, we will cause rebellion and or escape of those that are the next generation. They'll see the way we live isolated. They'll see parts of our culture that are actually good, that we're so afraid of we don't let them engage in because we're trying to protect, and they will flee far and fast from the way of Jesus because of how we've tried to imprison them in our isolated community. The risks are just as significant, though, uh, on the other side. If we neglect to be anchored in healthy Christian community, we'll become fully assimilated to the ways of our culture. That means we'll lose trust in God as the definer of what is good. And the beginning in Genesis 3 where everything goes wrong is when Eve looks for herself with her own eyes and says, she sees what is good. She no longer listens to what God declared as good. She becomes the definer of what is good for the human body, for human sexuality, for human relationships, for how to interact with our environment and culture and business and politics. When we become the definers of what is good and we're assimilated to our culture, there's going to be natural consequences to that. Sin distorts what is good. So often we really misunderstand what sin is. For, for a long time, the way sin has kind of been taught is that this is a rule book of do's and don'ts, and if you do the don'ts and don't do the do's, that's sin. And there's a list, and God's keeping track and grading you, and then you either get into heaven or you don't. And that is not at all how it works. It's like the total opposite of how it works. Sin is more like a disease. It's like cancer. And it slowly but surely will infiltrate every part of your life, distorting what God has declared and what is actually good. Not just as right, what is actually good. God's design for relationships, God's design for art and innovation and culture, for economies, for how to build a society, for structures and architecture and engineering. 
God created and it was good, and then he told us to go be creative too. And so there's natural consequences when we ignore his design, try to become the definers of what is good ourselves, or listen to popular culture's definition. Not because God's angry, per se, but because he had a design and we ignored it, there's just naturally going to be consequences when you embrace life in a way it was never meant to be embraced. There's two keys here for us as we look at this scale, this tension of isolation, only being a part of Christian community on one hand, or assimilation, ignoring the anchor of healthy Christian community and fully embracing the values of our culture. Two keys. Number one, we all need to know where, we're on, where we are on this scale. Chances are many of us are really blind to where we're actually at on this scale. You might think you're in a really healthy place and be totally isolated. You might value that. But you might need outside voice to say, you know what, might not be where you think you are. You might be totally assimilated and think you're still following the way of Jesus and have no clue how far removed you actually are. We need awareness of where we're at in the scale. The second thing is this. I like to often refer to to something I call a lean. We all have leans. If you're going to fall one way or the other, which way will it be? If you're thrown off balance, which direction will gravity take you? You need to know your lean when it comes to either isolation or assimilation. Are you more prone to assimilate to the culture's values or are you more prone to value protection and isolating yourself in community? I think we all have a lean one way or the other. Neither is better or worse. You just need to know what yours is. I quoted uh, the book Faith for Exiles last week, and the authors of that book present kind of a paradigm for necessary uh, relationship kind of cues for us. So I'm going to read this list. As I do, ask yourself whether or not you can say these things about yourself, because it's going to be a good indicator of whether or not you have the, the type of anchoring relationships necessary to be faithful citizens as we function in exile. Number one, I have at least one close friend I trust with my secrets. If you don't have that, you don't have an anchor that you need in the midst of our cultural moment. Number two, when growing up, I had close personal friends who were adults. This matters in two ways. If you did not have that as you grew up, you probably, there's a good chance you lack mentors now. We all need older people to pour wisdom into us. The other way that this matters is for the next generation. As parents, as community members, as family members within a church, this is why what's happening on on Thursday nights with our youth, with our juniors is crucial. We need other effective, older, mentoring influences for our kids, for the next generation, for ourselves, no matter how old you are, other voices to provide wisdom. Number three, I have someone in my life other than family who I can go to for advice on personal issues. I might add to that who I can and do go to. If you're not processing things with somebody, you do not have the necessary anchors for how to relate and be relationally integrated in our culture. Next, my friends help me to be a better person. This sounds almost silly or trivial. You go, of course my friends help me to be a better person. Pause, step back and go, do they actually? There's no greater influence for every single human being on earth than relationships. So who gets to define what better is? Do your closest people actually make you better and how is better defined. Lastly, and this one's critical, 
I have friends and family who are honest with me about my weaknesses. This one's really easy to know if you do or don't. If you're on the fence, do they actually tell you about your weaknesses? If no one's told you about your weaknesses in a while, you don't have this type of relationship that you need, and you need to go find it. It's not comfortable and it's not fun, but the people that I know in life that have people that will share weaknesses with them, they're the healthiest people. They have the most joy. They have the most abundant life. They just do. They've learned to deal with the hardship of that, but it means they're honest with themselves. And there might be two reasons why you don't have these people in your life, but the number one and the primary is because you're not willing to deal with it. We absolutely need people that will share our weaknesses with us. Not that we'll be jerks, but that in love we'll say things that are not nice. Love is not always nice. Love does not always feel good because they actually care enough to deal with the discomfort of that. I'll add, or I won't add, I'll get to that in a minute. Jesus calls us to this type of relational ethic. Do you have those things? If not, for us to be faithful citizens of King Jesus and the culture we live within, you've got to find those kinds of relationships. Back to Jeremiah 29, verse 4. This is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported. From Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your daughters and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city I've deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it has prosperity, you will prosper. Do not be isolated. Do not be assimilated. Find the healthy tension in the middle ground. In the same book, they, they say this, referring to the next generation. We can't simply shelter the next generation or ourselves and hope they don't come into contact with the worst the world has to offer. We have to expect it. We have to prepare for it. We must carefully and intentionally develop a resilience that is in but not of the world. Making resilient disciples does not mean protecting young Christians, but preparing them for life on mission. If we continue to focus on only protecting the next generation and ourselves have no chance. It just won't work. So we read Jeremiah 29 here, four through seven. There's this kind of picture painted and given of what the call is. So to put it not in the context of the verse, but a list, here's the relational call for faithful citizens. Number one, be among them. To be relationally integrated, we have to be among the community around us. Are you? Number two, interact with them. It's not enough to just be physically there, but we need to interact. Number three, seek their welfare. And number four, pray for them. Keeping in mind, this was often enemies. But that's the call we have as relational into, or as exiles to relationally integrate. I'm gonna add two based on the life of Jesus. Jesus ate with everybody. Eat with them, love them. This is a call we clearly have throughout the, the scriptures. In the same book, one of the ways they put this is that resilient disciples take part in robust learning communities. That is, they learn how to think 
company with other Christians who are learning how to think. This is the role of practices for us at Restoration Church. If you're not involved in a group of people practicing the way of Jesus, practicing thinking the way Jesus does and would in our culture, you have no chance. We have to be able to interact with others because the Bible is not like an encyclopedia or a glossary where you can look up an event that just happened in your life and go, how do I handle this? Well, it's real handy. Turn to page 76 and there's an answer for you. It doesn't work that way. You have to understand Jesus' character and interpret what he would do in our cultural moment. We need each other to do that. I want to kind of transition now to something just really tangible. I want to provide five maybe wise relational ideas, hopefully, for how we can interact in finding this healthy tension uh, in between isolation and assimilation with good, healthy balance. Number one is a recap. I've already been over it. Know where you are on the scale between isolation and assimilation and know your lead. Talked enough about that. Number two, develop thick skin and a soft heart. Here's what that means. Thick skin means people can insult you. People can say things about you. People can hurt your feelings, and you can handle it. A soft heart means you actually love others. Our culture mass manufactures people the total opposite, people with thin skin and really thick hearts. What that means is people that are absurdly sensitive, and cry about everything and are always offended and looking for the next person they can say offended them and who have such thick hearts they don't love anybody but themselves and their group. And I'm not pointing the finger externally only, that too, but also at us as the church. We're just as guilty as anybody else of having really thin skin, getting offended easily, and having thick hearts that aren't willing to love others around us. This takes practice. This takes the power of the Spirit takes maturity and health and security to develop thick skin and soft hearts. It's not comfortable, but that is the way of Jesus. That's what he means when he says, follow me. Next, oh, actually, let me uh, quote from Rick McKinley here. He paints this picture. Hospitality is not about being nice. It acknowledges the harsh realities of life in Babylon it mends the wounded and pardons the guilty. It goes the extra mile to get into the keyword messy pain of another person's life, and pretty much everybody's life has messy pain in it, and sits with them there waiting for God. When you sit with someone there waiting for God, it's not fun. It's not efficient. You don't feel good about yourself. You might feel like you're doing nothing, but that's the call. It welcomes whole people, wounds, and all. Hospitality that both blesses and resists, you can interpret that as in the sweet spot between isolation and assimilation. It tells the truth about what and who really matter. Hospitality doesn't always look like a party, but it causes rejoicing in the souls of strangers and in the heart of God. McKinley continues to say this, what makes the people of God both a blessing and a resisting presence in exile relationally is the willingness to replace the culture's definition of hospitality with that of Jesus. In exile, God's people are willing to give up privacy and security and exchange them for welcoming vulnerability, risking our personal comfort, and even security is no more a risk today than it was in the Old Testament. 
Here's the difference between today and the Old Testament. There's a, a billion, I think it's $7 billion industry about security. We got really nice garages and fences and video cameras and digital doorbells and all of this stuff. $7 billion a year, I think is the number that we spend on that. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Security's not bad. But if it's somewhat symbolic, which I think it is, of the thickness of our hearts, the thickness of our walls and garages and security systems, there might be an issue. Are we willing to be hospitable with someone else or are we too afraid so we're isolated in our Christian community? Next, know the balance of your relational accounts. It's the most simple concept ever but in every single one of the relationships you have, there's a transaction list, just like getting a statement from your bank or credit card. There's transactions. Sometimes you make deposits into relationships, and sometimes you make withdrawals. And the key thing here is that you have to make both. In any healthy relationship, you need to make both deposits and withdrawals. There has to be both give and take. And... Almost every one of us in this room is going to be better at one or the other, the giving or the taking, but both are required. Some people just take. That's really simple. You have a problem, you need to learn how to give generously. The one that's actually a little bit harder and probably more of maybe what's been deemed as a respectable sin is people that only give and don't receive. It might seem like it's good. It might seem like you're just generous all the time, which you probably are. But actually, a part of that might be rooted in pride and control. You don't want to receive from others because you want to hold on to control. It's part of our American culture. We strive with everything in us for autonomy. There's there's a book called Debt by a guy named David Garber, and it's really long and really boring in a lot of ways with a few really fascinating things. One of them that is fascinating in this book was this idea in, in some cultures that if a debt between two people or two parties is totally canceled, it's balanced, it's returned in full, what it actually communicates in some cultures is that that relationship is over. For instance, in some cultures, if I owe somebody $107 and I pay them exactly $107, then that relationship is terminated. I've paid my debt, we're done. Our culture doesn't function that way, but there's something to it. It's actually really interesting. There's health and stewardship. If you go out to dinner with someone, if they're paying all the time, that's probably an issue. You should pay sometimes. But it's intriguing how often some people go, we have to have it perfectly equated always. I don't want to be in debt to you. You don't want to be in debt to me. But in healthy relationships, there's both the give and the take. It's how Jesus did it. He gave generously, constantly. Jesus relationships were really costly. He dove into relationships that cost him his reputation, which is expensive. He dove into relationships that cost his time. He dove into relationships that cost his energy and effort, his emotional health. He dove into relationships that cost him other relationships. Eventually, he dove into relationships that cost his life. But Jesus also received, and he was often ridiculed for what he received relationally. A woman that comes in to a dinner party that didn't belong in that dinner party that poured an expensive ointment on his feet. And everyone looked and said, why would you receive in that way? 
Jesus understood that both parts of this mattered. Next, let people know where the dishes are in your house, know where other people's dishes are, and clean dishes together. I can't think of a more tangible indicator of the health of relationships than dishes. Like, I could just do a test right now between party A and party B, and if you know where the mugs are in the house, or if you're willing to walk into the fridge and grab a drink yourself, and vice versa, and if you clean dishes together, I can guarantee you have a really healthy relationship or not. It's really that simple. I love tangible metrics, and there's no better one I've seen in life than if you know where the dishes are in people's houses. It's that simple, but if you want to learn how to relationally integrate, start doing this. Just walk into someone's house and open cupboards and start to figure it out. (laughs) And then blame me when it's a little bit weird. (laughs) Lastly, people are not projects. They are people. There are all kinds of groups, Christian and not, Republican, Democrat, left, right, whatever you want to call it, that get this wrong. But one of the groups that is the worst about this, often in the name of Jesus, is us. One of the main ways, and I'm probably going to offend some people here, that's okay, that this plays out is in what we call evangelism. We look at a person and we want to go tell them about Jesus, and we do, and we give them a plan. We ask them to say a prayer. What we're actually unintentionally, hopefully, doing is communicating to them that their only value is as a project of someone that needs saving. And I feel like, because I've been told, it's my job to go proselytize and evangelize in this way, and so your value to me is if, and I, can get, is if I can get you to say the prayer. Now, that might be a little bit excessive, but that's often happened. Now there's two ways that this can happen. On one hand, you've probably experienced it or maybe you do it. You can share the name and way of Jesus and invite people into his community, which is good in a way that does not actually demean them, that brings value. I've seen this done so many times, but you've probably also seen or witnessed the times where it's done, where that person is just a project and they know it. I'm not saying don't evangelize. I'm not saying there's not many times and places where we need to step up and speak. But in those moments, if you're viewing them as a mere project, stop, because they know. And it's pretty devastating to what we communicate and how we're called to love. We as the church must shift from judging, shaming, changing, or trying to, or avoiding people. That those are probably four characteristics the Christian church is known as. Judging, shaming, just trying to change to our way, or avoiding people. That's isolation. What we need to shift to is people that are among, that interact with, that are seeking the welfare of, that are sharing tables with, and loving the people God has placed in our lives, people like us and people different from us. Back to Jesus. Jesus overwhelms me. I can't help after reading John 13, how our God took off his robe to wrap himself in a towel, to be a servant, to wash the feet of his enemy, to wash the feet of all kinds of different people groups, and he would have been judged for that. It's what he did, though. 
That's what following Jesus looks like. When he says these words, follow me, it's not easy and it's not comfortable. It's absolutely crazy. But this is the call. Are we willing to actually do it? Let's pray. Well, thanks for joining us. Once again, we are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona. And we are so thankful that you were able to tune in. If this is your first time, welcome. Uh, Jump over to restorationaz.org to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about who we are and what we're about. Um, If you have questions or if you'd like to connect with us, um, go ahead and hit that contact tab. We'd love to connect with you. And uh, until next time, remember, Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.